when you've really understood what they want, you know what? You've done half the battle right there because people trust you as soon as they can see that you actually care about trying to understand what it is that they're trying to do and you're part of the solution of helping them get there. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. I am your host, Mike Flynn. And if you're just joining us, the mission of my show is twofold, to guide you to an encounter with your own potential and greatness and to show you it is possible to leverage who you were made to be into a business or a platform that impacts the lives of others and helps you design the life that you want. My guests are entrepreneurs and leaders who have had what I refer to as an impact moment and are now using their platform to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. That all sounds great, right? But none of that is possible unless you take action. If you've listened to my show for any length of time, you know that each guest is part of a series such as leadership, mindset, courage, the comeback, and in this case, halftime. It's the middle of the year. You set out with some goals at the beginning of the year, and if you are on track with them, then congratulations, you're awesome. But if you're like me and most people, then you might have gotten off target or off your game plan over the course of the last six months. Now, however, is the perfect time to determine how the rest of the year will go for you and for me. What action will you take? When will you take it? And with whom will you take that action with? As I told somebody recently, it's time to grab the opportunity bull by the horns and ride it into submission. One of my personal anthems is the song Hall of Fame by the band The Script. The lyrics remind me of what you and I are capable of achieving. The lyrics like these, you can throw your hands up, you can beat the clock, you can move a mountain, you can break the rocks, you can be a master, don't wait for luck, dedicate yourself and you're gonna find yourself. If you and I do this day in and day out, even if we fail, but we get back up and we do it again, then we might stand a chance of standing in the hall of fame of our own life. My hope is that the guests you will hear from these next few weeks will stoke your thinking, inspire you to believe in yourself again, and take action, even if it means walking into the wrong room. That last bit will make more sense when you hear from Steve Sims. Now enough from me, it's time to hear from our incredible guests. When Ken Kanapan graduated from Yale, he joined the investment banking firm Kidder Peabody and rose to the ranks of senior vice president. He left Kidder Peabody in 1995 and took a gigantic pay cut to join a small company called Plantronics, located in a sleepy little beach town called Santa Cruz. Plantronics has transformed from a manufacturer of contact center headsets with annual revenues of just over $100 million to a global leader in audio communications for businesses and consumers with annual revenues of approximately $1 billion. The company and leaders like Ken haven't just been on the forefront of innovative communication technology. They've also been pioneering smarter working philosophy and integrating them as a cornerstone of business. Ken retired as CEO of Plantronics in 2016, but still remains involved in the business and entrepreneurial community around him. He is an incredibly thoughtful leader and provides a wealth of insight about humble leadership, generosity, and much more. So bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact. 
Ken Kanapan, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Very, very excited to have you here. Thank you for your generosity and sharing your time and your talent with us today. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. So as we were just talking before we hit the record button, I, I always start with the same question. And that is, if you could pick any skill that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? I'd probably pick empathy. Okay. All right, to expand on a little bit more, I think it's important in everything that you do. I mean, so you, you talk about uh, what's important to you in life. You've got your family, you've got your career, you've got your friends, and empathy is important to all of them. If you start with your family, it's pretty obvious. You know, we all have trouble talking to, at times, our children, to other people, and understanding where they're coming from and what their perspective is, and they see the world a little bit differently than you do, and it's, and it's hard to really get that. And once you get that, then sometimes people's positions are a little bit more reasonable. You can understand them a little bit more. You can engage in trying to help them. You talk about business, you get the same thing. You know, you have customers out there. They have a set of needs. And whether you're trying to create products and solutions for them, you're trying to sell to them. If you understand what's really their motivation is, what the real problems they have, you can do a much, much better job of that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's easy to go in and just try to sell the widget you have at the time. It's much harder to go in and sort of say, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? Really get that. And when you've really understood what they want, you know what? You've done half the battle right there because people trust you as soon as they can see that you actually care about trying to understand what it is that they're trying to do. And you're part of the solution of helping them get there. You've got the same thing with the people that work at your company. You know, you've got people there who've got career aspirations, they've got family they're trying to balance, they've got all kinds of sets of needs and pressures. And again, if you can understand where they're coming from, understand where they're trying to go, and again, just show that you actually care, and the first step of caring is understanding, that's, that's huge. What do you do today to, to, to develop and refine that, that skill? Well, I don't want to claim that it's a superpower today. Again, you know, it's <laughs> something that I, that I would love to have more of. But I, th I think that a lot of it is, uh, how well do you listen? And it, you know what they say, 10% is what people say. 90% uh, is the rest of the communication. And it's nonverbal, it's facial expressions, it's tone of voice, it's uh, everything else, the body posture that you know about somebody. It's what they do when they're not even talking to you. And it's taking the time and trouble to give them time to bubble up things that maybe they don't want to share right away. Human, you know, communications is such a complex and difficult thing. And so I don't know anyone who's truly a master of it. And you know what? It can help you in your hobbies too. I like to play poker. You know, if you can read people a little bit better, it can help you have more fun when you're playing. Yeah, we're recording right now on your poker table. So. We are indeed. <laughs> um, you know, it's such an interesting comment that you make about the the conundrum that is human communication, and it seems like it's it's a um, self fulfilling prophecy in that in that we've shortened and shortcutted the 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 way in which we communicate with people. We have less interpersonal interaction. Uh, we use shorthand constantly, and you know we've we've relegated our relationships to social media platforms, quote unquote, social media platforms where we scroll through people's lives. And I'm just wondering what your take is on that, having been around a lot longer than I have, you know, in, in life and in business and 
and you've seen, you've been on the, the boots on the ground seeing this, the rate of innovation and technology and how communication has changed in the business world, let alone in our personal lives. What, what's your take on, on all that? Well, you're, you're right. And, and many of those things represent particular challenges for communications. I mean, if we, if we go back, you know, in, in way good old days, so to speak, um, you know, you're, a lot of times we're focused more on our U.S. market and we didn't have to understand other cultures. We didn't have to understand other people as well. And now if you take the case of our company, we have to create global products. And that means you have to understand people in very, very different situations. And it's harder to, you know, internalize what you might want and project it on other people because their situations are so radically different. If we talk about generationally, you talk about social media and, you know, I have kids and yeah, they text me and, and no, I can't read their facial expressions when we're having that. <laughs> and no, I can't read their tone of voice. And, and it, and it inherently limits the communication. And similarly with email, you know, you, you have a larger company things, you know, just because of efficiency, you have many of these emails, one to many, uh, it's impersonal. You don't get the added nuances that you get in that communication. And people are doing it also because of time zones, you know, we've got, you know, nine hour differential. And so we're communicating that way instead of, uh, talking. And on the one hand, it's too bad. On the other hand, the benefits of efficiency or why we're doing that. Mm -hmm. it, it makes sense to do that. And so you can lose things in this. And I think it's a constant struggle and a tension between, uh, you know, efficiency, which is often quick, and richness, which is requires uh, time. And in, in the case of, again, people, there's so much inherent richness there. If you're never putting in the time, then you're going to wind up losing a lot. And I think you wind up losing a lot in the culture of a company. It's so fascinating that you mentioned that too, because... For the first time in the history of work, we have about five generations, up to five generations of people that could be working at the same company at the same time, which is amazing. I mean, somebody who's in their mid-90s trying to collaborate and work with an 18-year-old who is snapping and Instagramming all over the place and, and the other person is reading, the, reading a paper newspaper and they're trying to find common ground. You know, it's, it's on the one hand, it's very true, and what you say is is uh, is uh, is accurate. We we had you know big generational divides. You know, at at our company, I mean, at, at times we I remember we had parties, and uh, we'd have uh, people at my age group uh, wanting to go home after dinner and go to bed, and that was when the younger people were just arriving, you know, hoping to begin. And you know, at the same time, it was also amazing how. Uh, much common ground there is and how much desire there was for people to learn from each other, to understand different uh, uh, customer groups. And, and, and so the mixing of, of the different ages actually works pretty well. You know, we, we absolutely had times where younger people would be texting and older people would be emailing. And, you know, they didn't even bother to check, you know, texts for a day and people didn't bother to check emails for a day on the other side. And so, you know, people had to kind of get used to each other. But once they did, it, uh, it was surprisingly good. And, and I'll tell you this, we also found out that, that a lot of our younger people were even more concerned about uh, what we were doing in the community and, uh, and how products were going to help people than, than the average in the company. So it was it was interesting. So on the one hand, it seems sort of impersonal in terms of the mode of communication, and yet uh, their hearts were absolutely in the same place 
absolutely in the right place. Yeah, I love that. And 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 as someone who grew up in Santa Cruz and is, knows a lot of people that have worked at Plantronics and and I've personally have used the company's products and, and heard you speak multiple times, there definitely is a a a purpose and a and a mission that everybody in the company uh, is driving and stands behind. And that's really where that common ground is. It's it's not something that is limited by age or demographic. Yeah, well, I mean, it's actually both in terms of what we're doing in our business, but also what we're doing separate from that in the community. You know, mm-hmm. we, you know, again, a little bit of stereotypical, you know, you kind of expect that when people are uh, fully grown, their kids are gone, that then they've got a little bit more time and they're going to give back to the community. Um, you expect while people are uh, have their kids in school, they're going to be very interested in, in the, those organizations that their kids are involved with, helping the, you know, coach their sports teams or music programs, the arts, all that kind of stuff. But But I was really impressed when we had some of the things we worked on, you know, Habitat for Humanity. How many young people were out there eager to work on these projects? How many people were involved in the United Way? They set up this great, you know, young leaders program. And, and, the, and the enthusiasm of these people to work in their community was fantastic. Okay, again, um, in addition to wanting to see that the company was trying to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. You talked about coaching, and it's apparent to me through hearing you speak and and in the research I I did in preparation for our conversation today, that mentorship is something that's important to you. Uh, and I'd love to hear a story about maybe a mentor you've had in your life who has impacted you and shaped your outlook. Sure. Well, I mean, it comes easily to mind. The, the reality is that I, um, well, so I, let me just indicate how lost I really was when I began. <laughs> I had, you know, rode in college for four years and uh, my parents were uh, really more on the academic side. And so um, I really didn't know anything about the business world, but I was sure of one thing. And that was that I did not want to go and do more school at this point in time. And I wanted to do no more papers and I wanted to work in the in the real world. And I found myself uh, pretty unprepared after focusing four years on uh, on rowing. And in fact, I was planning to go out for the national team. My odds were very high. I was captain of the team. We were you know, national champions. My coach was coach of the national team and the odds were looking good. And then I broke a thumb shortly before the tryout. And so I, uh, I needed to, uh, to get a job at that point in time because I really couldn't train or support myself otherwise. Uh, I wound up joining an investment bank. There were literally only three firms left interviewing on, on my campus at that point in time. And it was, it was filled actually with wonderful people despite the reputation of some investment banks. But having said that, it was very, very, very long hours. And I was kind of lost because you're just, all you're doing is you're a robot doing work type of thing. And you don't really uh, get, a, you know, your head above the, uh, the fray to understand what's going on. And while I was there, there was a senior guy there whose name was John Gordon. And he really helped me understand um, more of the bigger picture, how this you know, robot was actually helping something. And, you know, it kind of goes back to that old story. You've heard it, I'm sure, about the cathedral. And, you know, you have people there and, you know, what are you doing? And they're digging rocks. And and that's what they're doing, slaving away. And then there's somebody there who's smiling. And what are you doing? Well, I'm building a cathedral. And it's just the the whole Mm -hmm. difference in the sense of purpose that you have while you're in that 
you know, rock quarry, salt mine type of environment early stage. And the other thing I got out of that was, you know, the, the way he, despite the hours and despite the strain, treated other people was so kind, so caring, and so compassionate. It made such a difference for how people operated and behaved, and it was an instrumental role model. Hmm. When you started in that investment bank, did you, did you think kindness and and service of others was a was even a possibility? I mean, because because investment banking does have to still today a, a cutthroat reputation. Well, I, I think that the firm was a very good one. Again, it was it was happenstance. I say literally, there were hardly any firms at the time I started interviewing, and my my rationale was that I was okay with numbers, and so I could probably handle it. And uh, and again, there were, there were a few choices. The other one was in Cleveland. This was in New York, and and the first firm had, had dinged me in five minutes. So so it was an easy decision where I went. But uh, but there really were nice people there. And again, it kind of comes back to that empathy point too. Some of these people, um, you know, the workload doesn't bring out the best in them, okay? I mean, there's a lot of strain. There's a lot of agony. Um, they're actually pretty good people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this great book called The Happiness Advantage uh, by a guy named Sean Acor, who, who's a Harvard professor. And uh, he talks about constructing your happiness. And he took an example he uses in the book is two janitors. One is seeing his life as, as uh, he's unhappy because he sees his life as just picking up other people's trash. The other is very happy because he sees keeping the bathroom clean so that the high school students can have a good experience so that they can go back to their classroom and have a, a great learning experience and go out and change the world. So it does matter how you think about the circumstances that you're in. And that's something that is totally within our control for the most part. For the most part, you mentioned you you were the captain of the rowing team at Yale, and that your rowing is no joke. It's a it's a hard hard sport. And I've interviewed uh, a two time Olympic gold medalist named uh, Aaron Kafara McKenzie, who who's a rower. And we talked about the literally the bone breaking pressure that you can be on on a row team, whether it's a, uh, a single erg or you're on a, on a multi, multi uh, rower erg. And I'd love to learn, to hear from you about some of the, the lessons you learned about leadership and, and teamwork and winning, despite the fact that you said you were unprepared for entering the real world, but you still had these great lessons that you garnered along the way that you probably, I would imagine, carried with you. Well, you know, it's a funny thing. Sometimes when you're learning the lessons, you don't really realize what it is, you know, back to kind of being in the grindstone. And, and yeah, you know, it's a, it's a physical sport. And in my case, you know, it's typically three hours every morning, four hours every afternoon, you're working out uh, year, year round. And uh, you, you do get into phenomenal condition as a result of that. I mean, I'm obviously no longer there, but at the time uh, it was good. And, and you feel you feel very good about that. I think that Back to your point about teamwork, um, it's a it's a sport where you know the the whole is vastly greater than the sum of the parts, and teams that function well together, uh, it's truly amazing how much they achieve. And a lot of people don't understand this is the sport, and I won't go through the nuances. But when the timing is exactly perfect, and the boat is literally going up and down above the water, and more of the pressure is applied when the boat is a little bit higher. And it's something that, you know, people in the boat feel and call swing. You, you just have this incredible 
uh, speed, this incredible sense of we are working well as a team. And on the one hand, that's a physical and technical side. And you could say, well, we could separate that from the teamwork side. But the reality is you don't, okay? Because mm-hmm. the reality is you're working out with these guys year-round, and you're helping each other, and you're pushing each other in a productive way, and that's how you get to be great as a team. And so the esprit de corps and the trust that you have in each other, when, after all, only eight guys are going to make the varsity boat, there's going to be guys in JV, and, you know, gosh, we started off freshman year, we had over 100 kids on the team, so obviously not everybody's going to make the team. But, But you still have to have that positive sense with everyone. And, and without going through that, I think it's hard to fully learn it and get how significant it can be to the enjoyment everybody has in the experience, uh, the commitment that everybody has and how successful you ultimately mm-hmm, are. Mm-hmm. It's such an amazing example, that concept of what you refer to as swing. And, and it's, I'm fascinated by the concept of friction in life and, and in business and reducing or, or rather dialing in the right amount of friction. And, and in that boating example, you're basically skimming the top of the water and you're getting just the right amount of friction to propel you at, a, at an amazing speed. And in life and in business and in our relationships, we can, especially when we have a, a team that we trust and know and relate to, we are, have the power to dial in that friction and yeah, you know, it's so true. I mean, one of the things that I find most depressing when I when I read these uh, statistics, and I think they come from Gallup or somewhere, is how many people in their work lives are not enjoying what they're doing. They're miserable. Mm-hmm. It's it, They're just doing it to provide an income for themselves, for their family. They're not really enjoying it. They don't feel like they're achieving something. They don't go into work excited about what it is that they're accomplishing for the good of society, some kind of higher purpose, even for the good of that organization. They feel like, hey, I'm a expendable cog in a big machine. And that's not a good way to feel. I mean, Mm -hmm. you're going through so much time you put into your career. If you don't go into work excited every day, that's a terrible tragedy. Mm -hmm. And what you read, of course, is that more than half of people actually aren't engaged, okay, only about 30% supposedly are really highly engaged with what they're doing. 20% are actively disengaged. They're unhappy trying to sabotage the company. About 50% are here and there. And that's, it's just such a tragedy. You come back to, again, the positive energy. If you can have people that much more excited, that much more enthused, that much more interested in what the organization is trying to accomplish, boy, Mm -hmm. what an incredible productivity boost for the company. And what a happiness boost for everybody who's working there. Yeah, there's this whole concept of 20% time that Daniel Pink wrote about in Drive. And it's based on all kinds of research. And and imagine if we allowed, if every company, and every whether it's a huge company or a small company, allowed their employees, their key stakeholders, their key players to take a little bit of risk on a project that they were passionate about. It actually is the least riskiest thing for that company to do. And I've been thinking a lot about this recently. I was having coffee with a friend of mine at Cat in the Cloud in Santa Cruz, a new new coffee shop, and we were talking about the story of King David, David versus Goliath, and and how David is is the perfect archetype for an entrepreneur or a, a leader. And here's a kid who was a nobody, and a small cog in a wheel 
and and nobody thought he could do anything. And yet his skill set and his passion and the opportunity all aligned at the right time. He was a skilled hunter. He had the ability and the talent to take down large game using only a slingshot. He was passionate about the his Israelite Israeli heritage and the Israelite community. And he step he was given the opportunity to step forward and and protect his heritage and he did it. And so he slays obviously Goliath and and that's how the story begins. There was risk in him stepping forward. But the amazing thing is that the opposite of him, the, the, the idea of him not stepping forward is way riskier because the Palestinians will overrun the Israelites and there you have it, you know? And it's the same thing with, with whether you're an entrepreneur or a, a business leader or middle management within a company like Plantronics. We need to create the opportunity today for people to be that David and to tackle that Goliath. How can leaders create that space to allow that to happen? You know, I think it's a real challenge because, um, and, and you're right, it's, it's absolutely crucial. It's crucial to how people are motivated, how they, are, you know, how much time they spend contributing. You know, you might spend a little bit of time with one idea, but if you got positive reinforcement, you might spend a whole lot more time with your next idea. If you got negative reinforcement, you might not even bother your next time. You mm-hmm. kind of, again, it becomes that work is perfunctory. It's, it's my income and, and that's all. And, uh, and the enthusiasm with which you tackle it is just night and day different one way versus the other. I think that, you know, back to kind of the time, it isn't that, you know, management is trying to stifle ideas, but, you know, they're, they're focused on getting Project A out the door, okay? Mm-hmm. And so all hands are on getting Project A out the door. And to your point about, you know, hey, do the 3M way, give people 10% of their time for something else. You know, people tend to be um, focused uh, so much on one objective that they don't spend enough time on the other. And it, so it's a, it's a tension. I mean, I understand, mm-hmm. again, both sides of that tension. Mm-hmm. But um, one of the problems you have is it's so easy to focus on what you see, which is Project A needs to get out the door. And so hard to focus on hey, what is that other big opportunity? What is the value of that person's motivation that if we're shoving too hard on Project A out the door, we're not realizing? And because you see the one, you tend to overweight that way. And mm-hmm. it's worth just noting for everybody. That's everybody's bias. You know, we focus on what it is we're trying to do today and we don't focus enough on the, on the future. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a self-preservation kind of tactic and it starts the basic level of of security, you know, I mean, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right. you know, I mean, whether, I mean, that, that hierarchy applies on a personal level as well as a corporate level. Right. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, They work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the impact entrepreneur holds you to call. 
So you come from a successful, hardworking family. You, your dad worked for the World Bank. I'm not too sure what your your mom did because the article I read didn't mention your mother, but didn't mention what she did or what influence she had on your life. But the author of that article that I read from 2003 said that your career was fast-tracked, that because of uh, your dad's influence in the World Bank, that you had it easier, basically, than other people may have had it. And I, I reject that bias. I believe that everybody has to work hard uh, in order to succeed in life and take risks. And so I'd love to hear, number one, uh, what your take is on people projecting their own assumptions on on other people and how to deal with that as entrepreneurs and leaders and just personally. And then I'd love to hear a little bit about your mom and what kind of influence she might have had in your life. Okay, there were a few questions in there. I'll do my best to cover them. First, let me just say this, you know, on the on the comment you made about people projecting themselves onto others, and it kind of comes back a little bit of that empathy discussion we had before. It's people trying to have empathy in some respects, but not actually having the empathy mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, we're busy. Uh, we don't have a lot of time. And so we sort of think, you know, hey, I'd appreciate that. Let me do that for somebody else. Well, it may or may not be, in fact, what that individual would would appreciate. And that's what we're trying to do well, but we may not actually wind up getting there. You know, you can project on people uh, a lot, but if you actually observe, ask, do other things, then you're going to get a much better reading in most cases um, on the person. You know, in the case of my my father, let me just say honestly, he was a professor of economics for a very, very long period of time at Michigan State, but he was the kind of guy who was on sabbatical frequently, working for the World Bank, for the International Labor Organization. And I would say that one of the benefits that it gave me was a slightly more global perspective on economics, uh, much more so than business, actually, because he was really focused on kind of government policies and things like that. Um, it was uh, interesting. I, I will say that that back to kind of my desire not to continue in academics, I had had not just all my time in school, but a great deal of time at the dinner table having my full fill of academics. So, <laughs> so I was quite ready to stop all academics. The, the truth is my mother had spent quite some time as a English uh, teacher and as a editor of, uh, uh, of uh, textbooks, and she used to uh, uh, give us supplemental uh, reading and uh, essay assignments. And, and I, again, had fully sated my desire to write papers and have them corrected and graded. So I was I was ready to move on from that. I think that it does give you a good foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I appreciate that good foundation. But in reality, I don't think it was uh, directly connected uh, to, to a lot of what I did. I think that um, you know, there's that famous uh, book by, I think it's called Ace, but by Ace Greenberg at Bear Stearns, and he looked for people who were uh, poor, smart, and driven. And I, and I think people who have the drive, they always just figure out a way. And as long as you're uh, very cognizant of where it is we're trying to go, why are, why are we going to make things better, okay? How can we succeed in doing this? If you If you have a vision for that, you know, you're going to get people excited by the vision. And if you care about the people that are in it and the customers and everything else, and if you have the drive as well, I think those are the key ingredients for success, whether, you know, you happen to have this background or that background. I've seen so many people with so many different backgrounds succeed in business, and I've seen people with terrific talent, charismatic, very smart, 
and they didn't actually wind up succeeding because mm-hmm. they didn't have the same true drive. Mm-hmm. So, Ken, it's amazing how people that seemingly are are talented, smart, the the you know the the lead player in the class that sometimes they they end up not being the successful one, and the person that is the poor but smart and and driven one ends up being uh, the, the cream of the crop, and and you wonder how choices impact that and and how their choices different choices could have changed the trajectory of or the the outcome of someone's path well you know and in part let's let's talk about the difference between classroom and the real world you Mm -hmm. know i mean i think uh classrooms are getting better and i'm not trying to knock their educational system but at least when i went to school to school up until i was in business school i never actually had a single project that was a team project they're not even evaluating whether you're good at working with other people. In the real business world, at least at, at Plantronics, almost everything is a team of people. I mean, don't get me wrong, we have some functional specialists in tax and so forth, but, but so many of the projects we're doing involve people with acoustic skills, electrical skills, you know, mechanical skills, people who are good at you know, marketing, and, 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 and they have to come together to, to bring these different skill sets to bear in, in a team. And in an, in an academic environment, you know, people who are very smart, yes, no question about it, uh, work hard, yes, memorize all the material, but not necessarily great at people skills can rise to the top. Now, again, I think probably uh, the educational system is getting better than this, but I don't think it's emphasized or as important as it is in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the real world. I think back to kind of the empathy, when you think about creativity, in the real world, the creativity that comes from understanding what people want is going to wind up being very successful hmm. in the market. Hmm. In an academic environment, creativity doesn't need to be based in really understanding what people want. It can just simply be intellectually interesting, rewarding, a new thought. You know, a new thought can be valuable. Hmm. In the business, you know, we might like a new thought, but we really want the new thoughts that are going to lead to successful products, to the ones that, that people really want. So I think there's a difference between those success factors. You could have somebody who was fantastic at doing, you know, I don't know, algebra, history, whatever. They could remember all the data. They could put it all back to you. But um, the kid who, you know, understood what people wanted uh, you know, he may do a whole lot better in the real world. You know, you are an open-minded person. And in fact, in that article that I read from, from 2003, you said that that was, that open-mindedness was one of your secrets. And that, um, when the, when you understand the problems, the solutions present themselves, is that something that you've, is that, have you always been open-minded or is that something that you've developed, uh, like in, in leadership? I'm not 100% sure, but I do think that um, uh, leaders often become less open-minded. Uh, one, one of the sad truths is that as people move up the ladder, uh, sometimes their hearing diminishes. Um, mm. And it's kind of the reverse of that empathy, uh, and it's correlated very heavily to humility. You know, I think that the more humble you are, the more open you are to what other people are telling you. The more humble you are, the more you are listening and learning all the time. Sometimes, back to trying to get things out the door, you can just push. And you know what? Sometimes that project will get out the door faster, as we mm. kind of talked about. But you're not learning as much. And by pushing, it's about, I know the way, and just go do it. And 
you wind up over time having a greater chance that you're misfiring mm -hmm. as to where the market really is. The, the humbler you are, the more open you are, I think, to that other input, and the more likely you are, if we're off target, to be able to recognize that, adjust, and redirect. We have a guy at Plantronics, a guy named Bo Wilder, phenomenally talented guy. And I had so many people there. They were product managers. And they come up with a new product, and they do research. And the research, secretly, was all about validating what it was they thought was right. And he was a guy who went out there, and he was just trying to learn. What was it people wanted? And the difference was so striking. And you know what? He's been promoted and promoted and promoted, and, and he's one of the top people at Plantronics now. And, and it really comes from that openness, that humility, that desire to learn and understand what people want. Mm -hmm. There's this great book called The Go-Giver by a guy named Bob Berg. And one of the laws, he has five laws that he lays out in the book. And one of the laws is being other-oriented. And that's basically a perfect description of, of being other-oriented is, is being wildly curious about what people really want and then delivering it to them. And the results speak for themselves. I mean, he's been promoted and promoted and promoted. But yet we, and it goes back to our own need for security, we spend our time trying to validate the reasons why we're right instead of being open to the fact that there might be a better way to, to do something. And speaking about humility, you, you, I've heard you speak about or to share a story about, a, a, I think it was a hot air balloon. It was like a, a story about a hot air balloon, which I thought was really powerful. Um, I, I guess I'm supposed to tell this story. Yeah. You know, it, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, the, the story in brief is uh, about a uh, guy who's in a hot air balloon, comes down uh, low because he sees somebody needs some help with directions. And so he asks the guy, hey, do you know where I, where I am? And the guy says, well, you're latitude so-and-so, uh, uh, longitude such-and-such, your altitude over sea level is such-and-such. -such. Um, and the guy says, well, you know, you've got to be an engineer. Because the guy says, well, that's correct. And how did you know? He said, well, you've given me information that's technically quite accurate, but in fact of absolutely no use in my trying to figure <laughs> out where I am. And uh, so the guy on the ground says, well, you must be a CEO. And the guy on the balloon said, well, yeah, that's right. How do you know? He said, well, you have no idea where you are, no idea where you're going. And now that I've answered your question accurately, it's somehow all my fault. <laughs> and I, I think that it is back to that that point of, uh, uh, of, of humility. And, uh, uh, and so that's why I like to, to tell that story because I think as, as people become leaders, it's really, really important that they, they listen well. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm, I sort of exaggerate all these things. Everybody listens to some degree, okay? Mm -hmm. and, and everybody takes feedback to some degree. But I think that um, uh, the more you do that, the better you are. And let me just venture into a, an off topic. You know, one of the things that, um, now that I'm retired, I can say, you know, I think that um, women in general have always done a much better job at listening, okay, in these sorts of environments and checking their egos and looking out for what is the common good. And I think, you know, it's, it's a challenge for men to make sure that they do check their egos, that they are listening, that they are not just trying to achieve Project A out the door but trying to make sure that the entire process holistically mm -hmm. is, is managed and consider the interactions of everybody else in the, in the group. Yeah, you know, and, and I, I agree with you there. I mean, I, I'm, my wife uh, is a great leader. She flexes her empathy muscles all day long, 
and inspires me every day to be more empathetic and and to dream bigger and to look at things more holistically. And one of the things that you mentioned at the Titans of Tech event is the importance of integrating the ability to dream and to love deeply and to connect in business. And it's such a, in today's fast-paced environment and where it's all about trying to create a product or a company even and and have an exit in in 18 months for billions of dollars that's what that's what it seems like the focus of the startup world the tech world is today and not on really value creation and and dreams helping other people realize their dreams and and love deeply and make deep connections and i'd love to get your take on how we can slow that down and and put the soul back in business yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think it's a real challenge because, again, people are responding to these real needs. You know, they, they need to get funding for their company. The people who are going to give them funding, you know, want to make money. I mean, that's, you know, it's natural. It's understood. Okay. And you can't tell them, okay, hey, we're about love and this is, you know, uh, the 60s hippie era coming <laughs> to Santa Cruz. But at the same time, you can have consistency in what you're doing and sell it. It takes a little bit more work up front. You, you do have to have a vision. On the one hand, yes, how we'll make the world a better place. And yes, why our company will help make that happen. You also have to have a strategy of how we're going to accomplish these things, an execution plan on how we're going to get there that's realistic for your size and resources, and has to be considerate of the fact that, yes, you do need investors. And you do need to feed your family and other things. And that means that what you do has to, in fact, be hard for other people to do at a lower price mm-hmm. and take that business away from you. Mm-hmm. So you have to think through all of the business elements. They don't go away just because you're trying to do something wonderful, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, they're still there. But if you put it all together, then you can have a vision that's even more inspiring to people because people can buy into the vision, but people at the same time have real-world lives too. People at Plantronics expect to get paid. They still have to have mortgages. They still have to send their kids to school. They still have to, you know, pay for medical bills and all those sorts of things. And so people have that side of them and they want that to be there. They also want to do something that's going to make a difference. And so if you can put both together, then the, you know, when we talk about, again, you know, that 30% of the people that are engaged, and if you can bring that up to 70, 80%, eliminate the people that are so skeptical they're trying to sabotage your company, what have you done? Double, triple mm-hmm. the output of the pool that you have? Mm-hmm. Totally. And, and I think the key there for a lot of people, you talked about vision, you talked about having a product that could fulfill that vision. And one of the major gaps in, in, in people's lives and, and business journeys and entrepreneurial journeys is the lack of a strategy or the 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 fact that they do their their vision is so big that they don't know how to break it down into small incremental steps and take the next best step forward and i i gave a talk recently where i said that the thing that jfk and nasa have in common with apple and tesla and plantronics and all these other great companies is that yeah they had a vision but they had the courage to take the next best step toward realizing that vision and breaking that strategy into multiple steps and not not getting lost in the whole vision all at one and time. You have to have that because you know you're the people in the company 
are smart people. And they're going to figure out whether or not we are on an achievable path mm-hmm. or not. Mm-hmm. And if you're not on an achievable path, it becomes a fantasy. Yeah. It's not really something that's going to happen. And people know that. And ultimately, they're going to leave. They're going to check out. Because they want to make something happen in the real world. Mm-hmm. And they want to have the financial success of the organization. So you do have to do that hard business side of figuring out how we're going to make this dream a reality, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. And that's that's hard work. Yeah. As a CEO of a major company like that, like Plantronics, do you have a network of other CEOs like yourself that are, I would almost call them conscious CEOs that are thinking about these visionary kind of things for not just for the company, like, you know, and, and the, and the shareholders, but like more on the, the dream building and the, and the empowering your employees to love deeply and build these connections. Well, I mean, so there are a lot of other great CEOs that I have known. And I, and I would also say that there are great people in the company. Cause you know, it's not like, I mean, it depends on the organization, but it, but it's certainly the case of Plantronics. It wasn't like there was one leader and it was me. Uh, There's so many other leaders who were incredible, inspiring people. I, I don't know if you've had Darren on your show or not, mm-hmm. but, but boy, you should. I mean, what an incredibly gifted person. He happens to be our head of industrial design. And he can do things and he can think in ways that, I, you know, I can't do. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he is so incredibly creative. He sees things from such a different perspective and he articulates it so beautifully and ultimately so visually. I mean, if you've ever been to our offices and you see the smarter working environment, and on the one hand, intellectually, you know, I, I, I understood it. Okay. But on the other hand, Here's a person who can translate it into terms that everybody can feel, experience, and realize. And, you know, again, you need all those, those people, and you need some of them at your company. I mean, mm-hmm. I think the idea that the CEO can be a lone wolf and be successful, I mean, and don't get me wrong, maybe there's a startup of, of three where that works, but, but in a larger organization, it's not realistic. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to have other terrifically talented people to make these things happen. Yeah. You you know, and and you got to not be afraid of conflict and letting the best idea rise to the top and, and letting all of the other ships elevate with a rising tide. You know, you were at Plantronics for decades and you, you left the investment banking world to, to come to this company with a mission and a vision. And the company at that time had already done amazing and, and incredible things. And under your leadership, continued to and, and will continue to to and I know it must have been hard to to decide to leave this company that you love so much and step down as the CEO. So maybe you can describe for us the 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 process and how you grappled with this very emotional and also practical decision to step down and retire. So actually it was it was an easier decision than it might sound like. I, on the one hand I intensely loved uh, Plantronics, uh, the people, phenomenal people. I loved our customers. I mean, many of those, you know, those were personal relationships. To your point about decades, I knew a lot of the key people for a very long period of time, and we had terrific relationships, trust, uh, friendship. And on the per- personal side, you know, some of that will continue. Some of it, of course, you don't see everybody every day, and so it it uh, it changes a little bit. I love the business. You know, we were doing phenomenal things with the business. The launch of soundscaping was a very exciting opportunity coming up. But at the same time, for me, there were also other things in life that I wanted to, to do. I had 
you know, I'd, I'd faced a medical challenge some years back, and I had, even prior to that, been thinking about uh, the succession for the position. And um, I'd found a guy who was marvelously talented, who was ready to take over as, uh, as CEO. And in all honesty, I think he will do an even better job than I did. And going forward, the company will, will, will do fantastically well. As, as great as Plantronics was, um, I've been working pretty hard for decades and decades in pretty demanding uh, positions. And I really was ready to go less than 110%. CEO job is one you can only do at 110%. Mm-hmm. And so I needed to get out of the way and let somebody else take over and be able to do some of the things that I wanted to do. Yeah, so that was a pretty pretty easy, streamlined decision for you to, to focus on spending time with your family and doing the other things that you want to do with your life, which you have a lot of life left in front of you. And especially because you did have those medical battles with cancer specifically that probably crystallized a lot of things for you. Yeah, I mean, you know, the funny thing is when I was going through it, you know, people said, well, geez, don't you want to smell the, the roses or something like that? And the truth is I was loving what I was doing in mm-hmm. Plantronics, so there was no issue there. But that doesn't mean there aren't other things that I want to do too. Mm-hmm. And, um, and again, I, I, 18 years as CEO was a, was a good, long enough stretch for me. And uh, to your point, I'm still young enough that mm-hmm. I can... Uh, get around and try some other things. And so I, I'm, that's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah, you're headed off to Europe in a few hours. So that's pretty fun. Yeah, yeah. Ironically, it's, it's still a Plantronics trip. <laughs> but, I'm, but, I, but I did take a personal one with my wife. We went to Myanmar or Burma, as more commonly known, a few weeks back. Oh, had cool. A, had a great time. Awesome. Well, as we uh, begin to conclude our conversation today, I just have a few more questions. One of which is, if someone were to write a biography about you, Ken, what would be the most surprising thing that readers would learn? Well, it would depend whether the biographer knew everything or not, because <laughs> some of those things you want to keep secret. Assume, assume the biographer is a very good researcher. A very good researcher. Well, um, you know, I, I would say, even though we've talked about it a little bit, um, uh, certainly, uh, poker is is one of those things that I I didn't really publicize a great deal in my leadership role, and yet I do love the game, um, mm-hmm. and I am hoping to uh, to play a little bit more now. Nice. Are you gonna? Are we gonna see you on the World Series of Poker tournament? Well, so one of the things about poker is that um, you either have to play with people who aren't very good or a lot not a lot better than you or you have to play for very small amounts of money so you don't <laughs> feel like you're just losing money one of the things that i've discovered is when i play with people who are better than me i lose and one of the things i fear is that most of those players will turn out to be better than me so if i feel like i'm playing better after a little more practice then maybe i'll enter well we look forward to seeing you uh if there's one thing that you want people to remember from our conversation today what might that be well, you know, more than anything else, what I would like everyone to do is to enjoy what they're doing. Uh, if you enjoy what you're doing, if you bring that, you know, you're going to be happier, you're going to achieve more. And, you know, it's a funny thing. People ask, you know, what career should I do or something like this? How do I get promoted? You know, don't, don't focus on that so much. Focus instead on what it is that you want to do. If you're focused, for example, on when you get promoted, people used to ask me, you know, how do I get to be CEO? I said, well, don't focus on that. What do you want to do as CEO? Mm-hmm. I mean, when people are trying to hire a CEO, they're trying to hire somebody who's going to take them somewhere. Focus on your vision. Focus on what you want to accomplish. Focus on what makes you happy. And then the fit's going to become natural. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're going to wind up doing something you love, 
and you're going to be very happy. Something that Lou Holtz told me when I interviewed him, when the the president of the university called him and said, "We're going to we're going to name you head coach of the of uh, the University of Notre Dame Fighting Irish," and he, Coach Holtz was very excited, obviously, and he said, "But but coach, a title just comes from above. Your players are going to decide whether you're a leader." And I thought that that was a really powerful statement, and it, and it aligns exactly with what you just said. That's a great quote. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Now, there's a great book uh, by an author named Clay Christensen who wrote Innovator's Dilemma, but he also wrote another book recently called How Will You Measure Your Life? And that's where this last question comes from. And this last question is of the same title. How will you measure your life? So there's the the life I've had and the life that I will have. You know, I think that... Um, as you, as you go forward and you get out of the business world, uh, inevitably, uh, it's it's probably a little more around family and friends and relationships that you have and how meaningful you are as a part of their life, which is not to diminish the things that you do in the business world, because I think those are significant and great. And, you know, in, in that world, you know, there's a bunch of measurements. It's not usually just one. Uh, you know, you're looking at, you know, what was the culture like? Did people really love working it? How, how much did you help your customers? You know, did your shareholders, they want to return? I mean, so you look at all those things and you're happy when you have more than one measurement. I think sometimes if you just have one thing, um, you can feel a little hollow, even mm. if you achieve that one thing. Mm. And I think people are complex and they need to achieve in multiple areas. So on the one hand, I want to have those relationships be good. On the other hand, I wouldn't mind it if I won a few poker tournaments too. <laughs> Ken, thank you so much for sharing your your wisdom and your your advice and being very authentic and, and not holding anything back today on the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Thank you very much for having me, Mike. You're welcome. Do not forget about the awesome gifts I have for you. The Clarity of Purpose Scorecard and the Six Bridges to Personal Growth and Wellbeing Head over to theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash scorecard and download those resources today. Ken, thank you for this incredibly powerful conversation. Thank you for sharing your ideas around empathy, the importance of how your leadership ideas developed over time, and how we as leaders have a duty to empower the dreams of others. If you missed any of the key points, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash 66 for all of the key points and highlights of my conversation with Ken. And while you're there, be sure to check out the Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them. Please don't fast forward. I have another request. If you've gotten any value from the show at all, I would love to invite you to write an honest review in iTunes. It seriously does help me and helps the show. So please head over to iTunes, search for The Impact Entrepreneur Show, and leave an honest review, hopefully five stars, but whatever, I would be very grateful. Now, until next time, you know what to do. Go make an impact. Impact.